know the lyrics to the extended version of every 90s TV theme song? And you recite the entire script to Wayne's World on command, verbatim? Might you wax nostalgic about injuries sustained during backyard wrestling matches? Have you pontificated at length over what beer goes best with Mario Kart? Do you philosophically dwell for inappropriate lengths of time on phenomena like snowsuits, minor five chords, Rocky Four, baseball stats, wall-mounted pencil sharpeners, cinnamon toast crunch, Murray Wilson, seasons two through eight of The Simpsons, Bond villains, then friends, lovers, palindromes, have we got the show for you. It's Calling BS with Brandon and Scott, your esoteric clerics for the fleet of mouth and mind. Brutally honest, meticulously obsessive, and painstakingly pragmatic. Check us out and BS, I love you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing stick figures from the online comic XKCD. And uh, the fan names for these particular stick figures are Megan, because she is identified in one of the early comics by that name, and it stuck. And Cue Ball, because his featureless head looks like a cue ball. And joining us for this discussion is a special guest, first-time guest, Mattathias Westwood, who has maybe the greatest name of any guest who's ever been on our show. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Certainly glad to have you, Mattathias. Uh, And we said the fan names for these characters are Megan and Cue Ball, and the note said that Megan is identified that way early on in the comics. That's early on in all of XKCD, correct, Mattathias? It's not... In this, yeah. the one we're talking about No today. one is identified by name in XKCD 1190 time. Right. But to uh, to help us with the discussion, we'll just go ahead and call them Megan and Q-Ball uh, for, for clarity. Uh, but just with the note that they're never actually called that in the comics we're talking about. So, uh, a little bit more information uh, about what we're talking about specifically today. As we said, we're talking about XKCD, which is a webcomic that is written, drawn, and created by Russell Monroe. It is a thrice-weekly strip, with new strips being added on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It first launched in September 2005 with one-shot comics about math, science, programming, pop culture, and dating, and soon gained a reputation for experimenting with the form of comics. And um, it also is noted for kind of playing with webcomics in a way that print comics never could. Like, it, it, it says, webcomics are going to be different. Let's let's explore um, how how that can be done. And um, Monroe is, a, I, I think, a, besides being like a creative individual, he's a computer programmer, right? And, yeah. and, and yeah. so he really he's can play. <laughs> yeah, he really can play around with uh, the web web comic design. Um, we're specifically looking at the comic strip slash animated short. And we'll talk a little bit about that where this <laughs> one is definitely blurring some lines. And it's called Time which began publication on March 25th, 2013 with a new image that was added every half hour. Um, is, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it, this is a web comic. Traditionally, uh, the, it's just a still web comic uh, uh-huh. on XKCD. Yeah. But this one took the frame of the web comic and there'd be a new am- image added yeah. and you could scroll backwards and forwards and animate it. And it'd be a new single frame right. would so, show up. But one new frame of this animation was being added every hour and then on March 30th or every half hour initially. And then on March 30th, it, it slowed down to being a new image every um, hour and it posted for five months to finish this web comic slash animated story um, with all those frames. So just to get this straight, so this was twenty four hours a day, every thirty every every thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. And then every hour uh, yeah. after a few days uh, for five months, wow. <laughs> one new image was being added. And I would imagine there were people who were such fans that they were waiting to go see what the new frame, the new panel yeah. was going to be. Yeah. And they knew exactly what it was going to post. Yeah. But it's posting every 24 hours. So everyone needs to sleep. Right. And you're going and to miss some. You, no you, but you come back and you go see those. Yeah. But in the end, there was a total of 3,099 frames to the story, and it concluded on July 26, 2013. It's, I mean, that's so experimental in so many ways. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, the form in which the story was being presented to readers and that readers would engage with it as it was being added upon a single frame at a time. It just fascinates me. In yeah. A lot of ways. That's really cool. Well, uh, typically at this point, we talk about how we came to it. Um, Mattathias, you suggested that we do this one. So, why don't we start with you? How did you come to XKCD in general and the story of time in particular? Yeah. So, XKCD is uh, something that I have followed for a long time. So, I actually ran into it first um, when I was a senior in high school. Um, So, just a couple years after it started. And um, I had actually just gone through my first breakup. And so, I was kind of... You know, experiencing the angst that only a teenager can when you're experiencing big <laughs> emotions for the first time. Like Harry Potter book book five. Yeah, angst, exactly. Right? Yeah. And <laughs> so, it was just the kind of feeling like, will things ever be good again? And then I was um, visiting family over a break and one of my cousins showed me XKCD. And I spent like, we spent like two hours just sitting, reading through the entire back catalog of XKCD comics and laughing a ton. And so that was my introduction to the comic. I kept following it since then. Um, I actually, I didn't see time when it first came out. I don't know what was happening. I had just met the woman who is now my wife. So I think I was very distracted. <laughs> um, and, but I, I ran over this when I was looking through old XKCD comics and was just stunned by the breadth of the story. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. We'll get into a longer summary of, of what the story is uh, in a little bit, but it, it's it's so simple, but there's I think there's a lot there <laughs> for mm-hmm. us to, to take yeah. apart um, within, uh, within that. Um, I knew of XKCD. I remember first being exposed to it in grad school, but this would have been probably like 2000, I mean, probably only a couple years after it started. It's never been one where I go like, go read all the new strips, but it's also popular enough that I constantly see some of them floating around and, you know, being shared on social media and I'll go read those. And sometimes I'll click backward or forward a few. So I know I've only sampled a small percentage of all of XKCD, but in general, I find it um, very smart. And there's this wonderful blend of that depth and that simplicity, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you'd stick yeah. figures. It's very sparsely. Um, you know, the art is very sparse, uh-huh. but the ideas are usually pretty, pretty um, sharp. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's yeah. being expressed yeah. um, w- within them. And um, most of the ones that I read on XKCD, they're, they're usually one panel or like three panels mm-hmm. or, you know, or yeah. a grid that's kind of guiding yeah. you to three panels, even if it's not yeah. explicitly three panels. Um, and so to uh-huh. go when you had recommended that we do, we do time and like finding this, this animated kind of web comic situation so it was it was really like it was a very different experience than what i expected yeah. even because of my earlier familiarity with xkcd i'd never seen yeah. time uh, yeah, before looking at it for this episode and almost everything he's done has been you know that one to nine panels mm-hmm. kind of sunday morning newspaper comic layout yeah and this is something completely different yes <laughs> all right what about you todd uh, I also remember seeing it in grad school. I feel I feel like I um, 
So has this been published in book form? Yes. Okay. So I I have like very, I, I'm I remember seeing this on the shelves in the in the bookstore at Stanford, um, and thinking and and reading through some of it and thinking this is like so strange because <laughs> uh, because of exactly what you said earlier these super simple stick figure drawings and then these really heady ideas um but i never i i i i didn't buy it i wasn't um i wasn't really into it i never followed it um and this was my first exposure to it in a very long time i uh, i mean when when you mentioned that we were going to do it i knew exactly what we were getting into uh but then i mean <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what we were getting into because this this time comic is um, is something else, and I still uh, am kind of processing it. So, yeah, I still don't quite know what to make of it. Um, and listeners, if you go look up the time comic, and we'll uh, we'll have a link to it in our in our show notes. Like when you click on it, you can either I mean, there's so many different options for how you're going to explore it too, because mm-hmm. you can just put your mouse over and scroll, and you control the speed of the animation, or you can there's some buttons where you can like just every time you push it, it'll roll over a frame, or there's a play button where you can set the frames per second. But that one has also been like crowdsourced yeah. to make the ideal exposure where if there's panels that you need to stop on to read, like crowd the, the crowdsourcing says this is one that you should pause on for longer than the the 10 frames per second. And so if you just hit play, it takes probably what about 15 to 20 minutes to go through the whole thing. Mm. If you're just watching it, if you hit play, or is it a little longer than that? I think it's probably closer to 30 or 40 minutes. 30. I think 30 or 40 minutes. If you slow it down enough that you can actually follow it, right? Right. You just hit play and have it be at the 10 frames per second. With no stops. Well, yeah, I I had it with the, like the auto stops, like the crowdsource auto stops, which I slowed down my auto stops to four seconds because I couldn't read them fast enough. Yeah. All right. Producer Andrew's over in the corner. He just called out that he sees a 12 minute version of it. Yeah. Uh, That goes by pretty quick. I'm sure with the, you wouldn't be able to read the, all the word. Um, It stops for, for text. Okay. Yeah. And the viewer we used is actually, it's a fan created viewer. Oh, really? So that wasn't the original. The the community put that together Mm -hmm. in order to have all these frames. When it was originally posting, you would only be able to see the one frame that was the current frame. Uh-huh. And if you wanted to see any old ones, you had to like go into the forum thread and find where people had taken screenshots. Or oh, so it was posting, like you couldn't go yeah. back and rewatch yeah. the whole thing. It no, would just be you, that you one panel was the there. Current frame, the current panel. So in oh, a wow. lot of ways, this became really interactive for the forum, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if anyone from the forum finds this podcast, just right now, I want to say you've dissected this more than we have. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm a little intimidated if you do find this and listen to it and hope that we're like hitting all your marks. We will not hit all the marks on the forum discussion. We'll get to that in a little of the trivia. This, um, this time one has been dissected. So if you go to XKCD's website directly, can you find mm-hmm. it now as an animation? Yeah. So um, if you go to XKCD's website and go to XKCD 1190 time, um, and then I think if you... There's a way to get to the viewer that I sent you guys a link to uh-huh. from that comic. Okay. Because Randall, the creator, actually has linked to this viewer because it's the one that has the most options for viewing it different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like five different ones that has okay. created. Um, but I don't know the, I don't remember the exact mm-hmm. steps to get to it. Okay. Because I just bookmarked it after. I right. And you sent us the link to that viewer. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. the, the direction for that. I, this is just yeah. fascinating to me, the, the crowd relationship that must have happened. Yeah. Yeah. with this uh, and the discussion uh, during those months as it was it was posting yeah I am, i'm really yeah. intrigued with all That's of this part of what absolutely fascinates me about this comic <laughs> animation piece <laughs> is the is the aspect of it, the community that created and the work that they've done to preserve it and respect this story 
All right. Well, uh, Mattathias was kind enough to also send along some trivia. I'm going to read some that I found and then I'll let him share some trivia about XKCD and about time. Uh, so first, XKCD, when you see that, you met, like I've always assumed that was an acronym for something and I never bothered to go find out, but I discovered it is supposed to just be a word with no phonetic pronunciation. It's not, those letters don't stand for anything. <laughs> you just put them together. Um, and primarily, as we kind of have said, XKCD tends to be these single panel or, or self-contained panels um, when, when you post a new strip. Uh, and there's no like long form narrative. Time is a break from that. Um, it, it certainly like wasn't what I was expecting when you said we, you wanted to do XKCD. We, we, so when we asked Mattathias what he wanted to cover and he said XKCD, I'm like, I'm interested, but I don't know how we can do that because they're always just, it'll be like having a discussion about the far side, which I'm sure we could talk about the far side, but there's no, yeah. you know, no story. But then you uh-huh. sent us the link to this one. I'm like, oh, this is, this is not what I was expecting mm-hmm. at all. Um, let's see here. Um, I, I, when I was looking this up, uh, there's on the XK, XKCD Wikipedia page, there's the subsection just about time. And I'm just going to quote uh, it gathered. That section has some quotes gathered. So I'm going to read some of those. So Tasha Robinson of the AV club wrote um, of the comic of time. She says the kind of nifty experiment that keeps people coming back to XKCD, uh, which at its best is in a strip comic so much as an idea factory and a shared experience, which <laughs> the way you described the when this one was coming out, that's very much a shared experience. Uh, Corey Doctorow mentioned time in a brief article on Boing Boing on April 7th, saying the comic was coming along nicely. And it was also described by Glenn Tickle of Geeko System as Monroe's magnum opus. And then the 3099 panel time comics, when it ended, um, he also did a blog um, kind of talking all about it. And then in 2014, it won the Hugo Award in the best graphic story huh. category. Um, I will. Uh, I don't know how many Hugos have been won by web comics. It's, it's got, possible that there have been others. Uh, maybe I, I can look uh, into that while you you read some of the trivia yeah. that you had there. Um. So uh, you know, as we've discussed, most of the comic is non-narrative, and this is this massive, ambitious narrative experiment. Um. But some more background just on XKCD in general. Um. Before he created XKCD, Randall Monroe was a robotics engineer for NASA. Um, and then he w- just drew these comics to amuse his coworkers during meetings. And someone suggested that he should start posting them. And he started posting them. And within <laughs> a year of actually starting the webcomic, he was making enough of money off merchandise sales that he stopped working at NASA wow. and just has been doing it's just like KCD full time mm, since 2006. It's just like me, you, and Andrew with the Protagonist <laughs> Podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rolling in the money. <laughs> and then during the release of time, um, it created an era of mystery. It's got this unusual delivery, right? One new frame every hour. And no one really knew where it was headed. Um, Randall's famous for his April Fool's Day jokes and special strips. And so lots of people thought that this was an April Fool's Day strip because it started on um, March 25th. And so they thought it would end on April Fool's Day. And then it kept going through July. Um, So that theory was quickly disproven. Um, But it gained a fan community, as we've discussed. And um, on the XKCD forum, um, the number of forum posts about time as it was being produced, eventually reached over 50,000 posts. And fans have continued to comment on that thread and continue to dissect it and communicate with each other. 
Um, so it's now over 70,000 posts. Total. It's just so much discussion. Um, just this. for that, which, you know, in context, I think most XKCD comics will have like one to 200 posts. Um, so, so 70,000 so, is, is a break from the norm. Yeah. It's for, it's for discussion. Definitely. And quickly they started becoming close friends, developing their own traditions, um, a special language, right? There are lots of special terms that were just used on the thread to refer to different aspects of the comic and to refer to people who followed the comic and things like that, um, which led to many inside jokes, special customs, um, a religion or two um, <laughs> that include discussing calling the comic time the one true comic. <laughs> um, Randall Monroe, the one true author. Um, any other comic by him is just an other comic. And then the thread itself is called the one true thread. And therefore those who comment on it are called otters because they post on the one true thread. Wow. Yeah. So um, that I think helps illustrate some of the impact that this story had. Oh, and the community a, a that built around it yeah, too. Exactly. That it, it created this kind of community that's very close knit and was very devoted to the story and really developed a sense of identity coming out of this story and their shared experience mm -hmm. trying to solve this big mystery. <laughs> Before we move on to the summary listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for joining us. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support the show financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar a month. That would be a quarter per episode. And hopefully we provide you with at least a quarter's worth of entertainment. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now I am going to try and summarize this, which simultaneously feels like one of our easier summaries and one of our hardest summaries that we've done. <laughs> um, and I just want to note this strip has been heavily analyzed by fans of XKCD. And when I was um, looking into trivia, I actually found a website called explain XKCD. Is that where most of the forums are? Um, so that's actually a fan forum. There's also the official forums okay. on XKCD. Um, and when I was looking there, they had broken this strip time into four scenes and I'm writing my own summary, but I'm going to use their, their kind of breakdown, I think to set the scenes. So scene one is called the castle and the sea. Two stick figures, a male who we're going to call Q-Ball and a female who we're going to call Megan, build a small sandcastle on the beach. They make the sandcastle bigger and more impressive, even needing cranes and scaffolding to complete their build. With ladders and other tools, the sandcastle grows upward as well as outward. As they are building, the two figures ask questions about the sea, which seems to be rising. The relationship between rivers and the sea. What else there is in the world? Like They're, they're getting philosophical as they're building their sandcastle. Eventually, they decide to go exploring. As they leave, the rising tide erodes their castle. After they've departed, um, there's a little girl in a beret who just kind of pokes in at the side of the panel and then disappears. I was fascinated by her. She was on for probably a grand total of like five frames of this, but I liked her. Scene two is called Exploring an Unknown World. The two figures walk across a wide, flat terrain. Megan says she's never been this far from home, uh, which reminds me of <laughs> like in any classic hero's journey when they're crossing the threshold and uh, yeah. <laughs> like Samwise saying, this, this is it. This is the farthest yeah. I've ever stepped. Um, Eventually, they come to a river. Q-Ball drops his water bottle in the river while he's filling it up to get something to drink. And he thinks about diving in after it. But Megan says, that's too dangerous. And they debate 
trying to cross the river, but then they decide they're going to continue walking upriver to try and find a safer place to cross. They compare this river with rivers they know back home. The ground they're walking over shifts to an uphill walk. They also encounter some larger trees and bushes as they're walking. Uh, they stop and rest. Cuball finds an old campfire and shows it to Megan. They climb over a ridge and now they see some giant trees. And previously, like in all the drawings, the biggest trees were like twice as tall as the stick figures. These ones are like 10 times as tall as the stick figures. So um, definitely entering an unknown world for them. One tree has like written markings all around the trunk. They find deliberately cultivated plants and they eat some berries or maybe grapes. I'm not sure <laughs> what, what it was, but it was clearly like a, a garden had been set up and they ate some of the, the food as they went through there. They keep walking and then cue ball gets scared by a snake. Then they come to a tree with a baby bird and they watch a mother bird come and feed the baby. They begin climbing up a mountain. It's harder and they debate turning back, but Megan insists that they need to keep going. They find an abandoned shelter and a large cat, maybe a mountain lion, uh, attacks and lands on top of Q-Ball and then Megan grabs a stick and hits it and the cat runs away but they notice Megan has gotten a very big cut from one of the cat's claws and they're concerned about this cut and how much is bleeding. Uh, they, they take some turns sleeping at night and in the morning they decide they're going to keep going and eventually they find a lookout, lookout tower. They climb up the tower and they can see people in the distance. Scene three is uh, was, was called by the fans Finding an Unknown Tribe. They keep walking and eventually they meet three people, but they can't talk with them. And I love how this is done where mm -hmm. we've always had just simple sticks or word balloons with English. And over these people's heads, it's just squiggly lines, just, you know, immediately visually denoting foreign language that, that we're not going to understand. Uh, Megan and Cuball show the new people Megan's cut from uh, the, the cat and the strangers help her with some medicine that, uh, Megan and Cuball don't know what it is exactly, but it seems to be efficacious. They travel with the three strangers and eventually Cuball thinks he has learned the word water from their language. But then he says, well, maybe it might just be drink. <laughs> like some of the, it's so simple, but it makes, it, it captures like the, the, the difficulty of um, language barriers. Even when you think you're starting to get it, there's so many options for what it could be. They communicate uh, with the strangers with drawings uh, to try and uh, clarify where they've come from. And then they continue traveling and eventually they come to a castle. And that excites Megan because she never thought she'd see a real castle. At the castle, there's a woman they can sort of communicate with because she knows some of their language. And it's shown where like you see English words that are kind of jumbled a little bit and they're crooked and there's um, like ink smudges. smears on top of them and smudges. So you can't quite see through it. And I just really love the visual way he's, he's playing with um with oral language like with, uh -huh. with spoken language um, yeah and, and um even though it's difficult they're able to communicate and they talk about the rising sea level back home and this woman says that the sea is going to continue to rise megan wonders if it will take years and the woman says only days and tells them that it is too late to return to their people and that they're lucky to have escaped. And worrying about the people back home, Megan and Cuball just leave. <laughs> they just run out and they begin running back home. And scene four is called Recovering the People at Their Home. As they run home, Megan tells Cuball she stole maps from the castle. They use the maps to get back home and prepare their people to evacuate while they try to figure out a way to escape since it will take too long to climb back to the mountains uh, and the sea has already risen to their camp. The girl in a beret from that very beginning where like she popped in at the side. Um, she floats up on a raft made from the scaffolding of the sandcastle and the group quickly expands the raft and then ride out on uh, the flood together, abandoning the raft when the flood has finished in order to explore new terrain together. The end. That's it. 
Yeah, it's really simple, but it's not. You should, listeners, you should all go find XKCD time and, um, you know, take the be it 20 to 45 minutes that you need to kind of explore this webcomic. And then if you're like me, you're going to find yourself just thinking about it a lot <laughs> uh, afterwards. Yeah, it's definitely, it's got a lot in it for such a compact, simply told story. Right. And it, it's not just that the narrative itself is actually fairly simple. Like I, I summarized uh-huh. all the main beats of what actually happened. But like we've said, the art is pretty simple. Um, you got stick figures and pretty base, basic trades. is black and them. white. It's black and white. Yeah. So you're not even seeing like it's not detailed drawings of trees it's not in color you don't see even to the, the beginning to the point that at the beginning when they were talking about the yeah. sea i'm like is that sand or sea that they're pointing yeah. at right there and yeah like i couldn't really differentiate it at first and as it goes along I, I was able to tell exactly um what was going on there um and, and like there's not a whole lot of dialogue it's it's mm-hmm. pretty simplistic even in that but i just feel like there's a lot here for us to try and unpack and we've all kind of added some notes um, about things we wanted to touch on. Mine is more, uh, well, I kind of feel like there's there's story and there's also like structure and form and how this is being presented that are worth digging into. Which one do you guys want to tackle first? So I just have a, a couple comments related to setting mm-hmm. and what um, fans of, you know, theories and also what Randall said about what he was intending. Okay, yeah, please. Um, and so um, he, had, you know, has been asked, you know, what is this story? Where are they? what's going on and his explanation of what his intention was is that for him time is a story set eleven thousand years in the future and it's post-apocalyptic so you you know we kind of discussed they have fairly simple level of technology it feels pre-industrial right yeah they're they're building this sand castle at the beginning but they don't really have tools they don't have computers Mm -hmm. um they don't they talk about how the sea level is rising, but they don't understand about right. the sea. Like, you you see pulleys, but yeah. not machinery, yeah. really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they say, like, we don't know why it's rising. We don't know how the ocean works. Mm-hmm. Let's find out. Um, and so humanity is kind of, again, in these tribal organizations and just small communities that don't have a lot of history and context or understanding of the civilizations that have preceded them but are trying to make their you know, way through this world. Um, and then also it's in the Mediterranean basin after a, something has caused the Straits of Gibraltar to close and the Mediterranean has dried up. And so people are living in the bottom of this huge dried up valley that used to be filled with an ocean. Um, and then as we've discussed at the end, there's this massive flood that then refills Mm. the Mediterranean. And um, scientists think that this actually happened once about 5 million years ago, that the Mediterranean, you know, we can see that it dried up. There was this time where it was super, super salty and small. And then something happened that opened up the Straits of Gibraltar and (laughs) tons of water poured in over the course of a couple months. It went from being a tiny little ocean to, you know, the Mediterranean that we know now. (laughs) Um, And so I think there's stuff in there in terms of it being called time, right? There's this idea with the passage time that there's been 11,000 years and how much does that change human society? But also these characters are very relatable, Mm -hmm. right? Even though they're at this different level of technology, the questions they have about the world and the things that are important to them are things that are very familiar. Yeah. Um, So it's about what changes over time and what 
remains constant. <laughs> and um, like with all that information you just kind of gave us, like some of that I picked up watching this, uh-huh. um, you know, like the idea that this vaguely pre-industrial, there's different tribes. Uh-huh. Um, it, they're smaller groups, right? Yeah. So it's not like these are massive cities. Like I think it's a, a few dozen. It seems to be what yeah. is in, you know, the group that's by the beach. Yeah. Um, and so like it, it definitely could click right into post-apocalyptic with that. But like the, yeah. the whole Straits of Gibraltar and uh-huh. Mediterranean, yeah. like that, that's not there for me. Yeah. Um, no. But yeah. That's he's very said, specific. Yeah. He's, like, he, he's confirmed some of that, right? Flat. Yeah, he's, he's confirmed that being his origin. And for, for him, he did tons of research. So all of the animal species and plant species that show up mm-hmm. are species that he actually researched that are native to that region. Um, and he had tons of pictures, and, but then did these black and white silhouettes, right? Yeah, so it's just so exactly simple. what anything uh-huh. is. And then there's a point where um, they're taking taking turns watching during the night in case the cougar comes back uh-huh. and you see the stars move. Uh-huh. And that's actually based on astronomers projection of what stars would be passing over that geographic point <laughs> 11,000 years from now. Oh, wow. And it's, there are a couple of stars that we would see in the sky now that aren't in the projection because they will probably have gone supernova before then. So it's wow. this incredible level of detail and research for Lord. this very simple presentation. To me, that feels very um, Hemingway-esque, where Hemingway's theory of writing is sometimes called the iceberg theory, uh-huh. where like he shows you the tip, and you're just yeah. supposed to be able to. If you do yeah. the work, you'll see everything that's beneath it. Yeah, and so he's gonna like Hemingway would give very sparse sentences and just simple dialogue, yeah. but you're supposed to feel there's a lot built up in the relationships of these two people who are having the simple conversation. Yeah, uh, I think XKCD both in general, I think, I think it does it uh-huh. with that simplicity and just, you know, w- with a few lines, like that's the tip of the iceberg and you're supposed to kind of explore. I mean, that's why whole uh-huh. forums develop yeah. around every single XKCD comic. Cause there yeah. is this iceberg metaphor uh-huh. um, for it. And certainly for, for time, I, I think it's not just that there's that meaning that can be found there. There's also all that work that he put into the preparation. He's not going to show you all of that. Like he's not going to yeah. like, point it out yeah. it's just there and maybe you maybe you can find it if you have uh seventy thousand posts in a thread that's yeah. that's analyzing this and some interviews with yeah. the, with the creator We're, for the language the squealy lines when the other tribe shows up he works with a linguist to develop a language uh, so there's actually a spoken language that's behind that written script and then also this unique written script that they invented but he's never told anyone what specifically things mean and so fans have worked to try and figure out different parts of that language and are still continuing to debate. <laughs> they just need, need him to give them the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wow. So I think this is fascinating. Like all yeah. of this specificity, because mm-hmm. the, the thing that just um, totally jumped out at me as I read this is just how um, mythical it is in structure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Joe mentioned hero's journey before, but it is, um, it just, it feels to me like, timeless like who yeah. cares when it when it yeah. is when it takes place because it's telling uh such a primal story um that it doesn't matter when yeah. it's set and and the fact that he's gone to such lengths um uh, to be so specific uh in the telling of it and and still able to uh, capture uh, a feeling that uh, is so primitive um i don't know i i, I I like that. Like, there's a part of me that says, like, what a waste. I mean, what a waste of time. If you're going to tell a story that's timeless, like, who cares about the stars in the sky? But uh, there's a much bigger part of me that says, no, are you kidding me? That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, And I think artistically, 
uh, it's deceiving uh, how sophisticated what he is doing is. Um, these stick figures are good. I mean, this guy has mastered the stick figure. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. they do amazing things, like um, just physically, uh, the way that he's able to express motion and emotion um in these little and they're not big stick figures they're little tiny stick figures uh and yet they're able to do amazing things and then i think especially when it turns tonight i i would i thought okay he's like moved to a different level (laughs) (laughs) he just leveled up (laughs) he totally levels up with this Um, amazing starscape yes with the, the starscape and the trees and the way that you can just barely see the trees behind this thing and um, and he changes the gray, the, the scale a little bit of the, of the grays and the blacks and whites. It's, um, this is so much more than, than watching, you know, elementary school kids draw stick figures or grownups draw <laughs> yeah. stick figures. Uh, it's very, I think artistically it's super sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And with the research you did, I feel like there are a lot of authors who would feel like they needed to make all that obvious mm-hmm. and establish this world and like tell it would be so readers, tempting, I'm sure. This is where we are, this is the setting. But cutting all that out is what allows it to have this mythic power. Mm-hmm. But then having the detail and him having done all that research and putting in these clues also allows it to have this greater mystery and depth. Yes. When people really want to dig in and say, like, what is going on here? What is this language? Right. It's not like Star Wars where it just ends up being gibberish. Right. Right. There is an actual language there that you can decipher. And, and you feel it even if you don't know it. Like, yeah, you just exactly. feel like even the Night Sky ones. Like, I didn't yeah. know that was an exact thing of 10,000 years in the future or mm-hmm. however many years it was. But when you watch that go by, you're like, this is not someone just doing paint splatter stars. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and that mix of, like Todd said, the deceptive simplicity um, and, and with the specificity and yet this this kind of universal story, but this very specific location and time that he had in mind and that he researched to make accurate within it. To me, it plays with some Scott McCloud's theories of comics that he writes about and understanding comics in really fascinating ways where he talked about what um, like he, he used stick figures like he, he, he at one point Scott McCloud's talking about images and he says like the specificity of a photograph means anyone who looks at that sees that one person and it's only ever going to be one person. And then he breaks it down to like a little simpler, simpler, simpler until you get to a stick figure. And he's like, this can be anyone. Anyone could look at that and see themselves Mm -hmm. in the story. Um, And I think that's one thing that works with this XKCD time story is that we have this strange mix of hyper specificity that even if the author's not pointing out and yelling at you, you feel its presence um, in the story, but it's also feels universal because the simplicity of the, of the um, stick figures invites anyone to be able to look at it and say, Oh, you know, that's, that could be me. Could be anyone (laughs) like, like it's not, it's not stick figure cue ball. It's just a figure. It's a human figure. Um, And so it's human male, human female. What are they doing in this story? With this almost Adam and Eve quality of like, this is, yeah, at the beginning, it's (laughs) just them. This could be the only people in existence in this story. (laughs) And then eventually we run into other people, Mm -hmm. Um, but it starts out just with them on this shore. And then they start building the castle and it all goes (laughs) on from there. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot for that, especially with cue ball, right? The reason he's called cue ball is that his head is just a circle, right? There's no <laughs> hairstyle. There's 
no other specificity beyond he is like the ultimate generic yeah stick figure right and there are other characters who are identified you know are wearing hats or have specific hair or things like that but cue ball is the most generic and megan is effectively the the female equivalent where she is it's just super generic a simple ponytail is all that's known it's female (laughs) yeah and she just has the the short hair um, since I mentioned Scott McCloud, there's one other thing I wanted to jump into with him. Uh, and again, this is more about form than this specific narrative. And um, Scott McCloud, his most famous work is Understanding Comics, uh, but he's also uh, – and he was writing that about print comics and the comic book medium, uh, you know, that art form. But he's also been um, for years talking about what the internet uh, can do for for the comic book art. Um, and he he uses the metaphor of what he calls the infinite canvas, mm-hmm. um, meaning that, uh, you know, the printed comic book is contained within a page and there are limitations inherent to that. But with a screen, uh, he said that should be a window that can go anywhere. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like the canvas that a comic book artist can play with online can go any direction, any any size, it can shrink, it can, it can move. And there's an infinite canvas that just doesn't exist for printed art work comics. Mm-hmm. And when you start talking about this, everyone's kind of like, it's never going to do anything like that. Scott, just calm down. Uh-huh. Uh, and then for a few years, it didn't really like the, everyone who tried to do web comics kind of was doing forms of print comics, just uh-huh. using the essentially the computer monitor, like a page. Um, but then when something comes along like this, or there are other examples of people who have done some really interesting things as well. Um, like Scott McCloud points to one called, I think it's called Dog Imagines the Heat Death of the Universe. <laughs> and as it scrolls along, like the, the images just transform in a way that wouldn't be available on a page. Um, but when something comes along like this, I just got to think Scott McCloud says, ah, oh, yes, <laughs> someone finally understands <laughs> what I hoped. And it's, it's like, I probably wasn't even imagining that. I just knew there were going to be new things done with comics online that could never have been done um, on in print. Uh-huh. And, and this is a, a just a, a, a perfect example that, there's there's experimental ways we can play with this form um, that that are going to allow different kinds of stories and different uh, kind of audience interactions um, that's going to be unique from any kind of storytelling that's ever come before. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you about that. Um, do you do you get the sense that a work like like this XKCD uh, time story is um, like prophetic in that uh, or or a precursor to? Um, a new way of telling stories that this is going to be a revolution. And we're going to look back and say, man, do you remember when everybody thought that we were just going to keep telling the same kind of stories online, but really now everything's changed and everything is uh, wild and different, or is this, is it probably going to stay um, experimental and we can experiment in ways that we've never been able to experiment before, but mostly we'll tell the same kind of stories and every once in a while, somebody will do something really unique i think it's probably gonna be more of the latter than the former mm-hmm. you just said um that we're gonna stick with what we know and what's comfortable but we're gonna keep finding these people who are pushing the envelope and mm. i think the envelope's gonna get wider and wider <laughs> slowly but it's not gonna be like suddenly oh this is the main way we're gonna do storytelling online with any of these yeah. experimental forms well it is interesting so i just finished reading a biography of jim henson and he was a guy who's constantly trying to find new ways to tell stories Mm. Um, and he had this project that he kept trying to do, but there just wasn't technology to do it in the 70s and 80s, which was he wanted a choose your own adventure movie where mm. you have lots of different pathways filmed and the audience would have screens where they could press and vote 
on choices periodically <laughs> and like within what the movie played, theater, the, within the movie theater, right. <laughs> and what we played would depend on those audience choices, right. Which is absolutely crazy to try and figure out how to do this logistically. And you have to, when you're doing so film much. reels and exactly. like, like think of when he was trying yeah. to imagine this yeah. pre-computer. Yeah. And his daughter said, all of this theory we did just became computer games. Right. right? Yeah. Which are these long form narratives a lot of times that have pretty compelling stories and have lots of little film-like segments that will move the story forward. And then lots of action sequences in between where you as a character mm-hmm. get to decide where you're going and what you're doing. Um, but it's interesting to think that's something that he was trying to figure out a new way to tell stories, but there just wasn't the technology yet. And I think XKCD is a great example of a new set of ways of telling stories that also has come at the exact right time where he has mm-hmm. this technology, where he as one person can do these massive experiments. Yeah. Mostly on his own. Right. Right. He'll like consult with different <laughs> specialists to say like, what would the stars actually look like? But in terms of the actual like creation of all of these frames and then creating a program to post them on this strict <laughs> schedule he he could do it himself and but, he said he he built up a backlog of frames and started before he started releasing them and it was only during like the last week where he got to the point where he was actually having to work all during. day to draw new ones because it was taking longer than an hour to finish <laughs> a new it, was, it was finally catching up in that yeah. last a little bit um but what you're saying about like jim henson and his idea for like mm-hmm. pushing technology i think um like say he had somehow succeeded in doing that film mm-hmm. that he wanted to do it would have been a fascinating yeah. experiment, but I don't think all of films would suddenly would have become that thing, right? Yeah, right. Would, yeah. um, but it would have been, I, I'm sure also like there's the the fact that as you're trying to push forward ways of, of doing storytelling, like you have that goal in mind, they probably would have invented some technology that ended up getting used in other things. Like George Lucas yeah. with Star Wars, you yeah. want to tell a specific kind of science fiction story and they invented technology that mm-hmm. never existed before, but that technology then got adopted into all the other classic kinds of films that are being made. Um, so this envelope pushing, even if it doesn't, become like the new norm for how uh-huh. storytelling can be done. I think there's, there's benefits, you know, even if it doesn't become like the accepted way, this is the best way to tell story. Yeah. I think it's interesting to just think about like what things have come along and really truly been revolutionary and what things have come along that everybody thought would be revolutionary and really <laughs> haven't been. Um, and, and just like, how do you know, how do you know? Right. Like when people saw photographs for the first time, I'm sure that there were people that thought, my goodness, that's, that's it, right? Like <laughs> the world will never be the same. I've seen a, da- a daguerreotype, right? Mm-hmm. And, and other people um, were like, oh, come on, you know, like hold that up to Michelangelo, you know? <laughs> and I know what, I know what is way better, right? But, but photographs, you know, they're not going anywhere. Um, and, and then, uh, and then film and then uh, v- uh, voiced film and then color film and then but i remember seeing avatar um in the theaters you know james Cameron's avatar in 3d and i thought i just saw the wizard of oz like i there's a before and an after the world will never be the same because everything's going to be in 3d and it's going to be amazing and this is the future of filmmaking and that's like the only film that i've ever seen (laughs) in 3d Right? I'm sure they were thinking the same thing in the 1950s with the red and blue tinted glasses for their 3D. Like, oh, this is where film's yeah. going now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or uh, 3D TVs in your house. Right, which were a thing for a while. You could buy. 
Right. But now, but it just, it kind of fizzled or eBooks and people thinking eBooks are just going to, you know, nobody's ever going to buy a book again. And, and all of our books will be interactive and they'll have videos inside of them. And well, this whole new thing, it's a, it's not going to be a book. It's going to be like a book and a movie at the same time and the internet and everything. And like most people now are thinking, I just kind of want to read a book, you know, yeah, like, know. <laughs> like it just hasn't happened. But, but then stories that take advantage of those edges and uh-huh. play with, right. This is, part comic part animation and it works yeah. beautifully crossing this boundary but most stories aren't going to be those sorts of right. order things. those kind of liminal spaces yeah. um but tata like as you talk about this there's also then like the entire newspaper industry just kind of said everyone's gonna always want to hold the print in their hand and yeah. and they really misread that situation yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. i think it's really hard to predict yes yeah, entire industries have tried to rise and entire industries have fallen from bad predictions. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating. and uh, But I agree 100%. This works as a thing. I don't, I don't imagine... Uh, when, I, when I finished this, I didn't have the thought, man, I wish everybody did stories like this. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I'm really glad this story um, was told this way. <laughs> but I am so glad that this story exists in this format. Because uh, it's just... It's amazing. And so to kind of turn to the community that grew up around this, I, like I said, I came to time after it was done and just was amazed by it. But I, ever since I saw the first time, I've tried to imagine what would this be like if you're one of those people who's coming to XKCD just to look for your, you know, regular daily three panel comic. And you have this one frame, which most of the frames don't even have any dialogue at all, right? It's just a frame. And so they're being like, what's going on? And then maybe like you look at it for like five minutes and you see a tiny thing change, right? Just like one, one like animations little, worth yeah. of frame, exactly. like, like frame by frame animation yeah. shift. Yeah. And you go like the stick figure just bumps right? its arm up. <laughs> um, and then you, you have this mystery that you want to solve. What's going on here? What is, what is he doing? What, what's the joke? Right. Mm-hmm. And you go to that forum thread and look at that forum thread and see that it's like 10 pages long already. Right. And start seeing all of these different frames. Right. Well, I think that what you just said, like, what's the joke? I think uh-huh. that would have been so fascinating when, when you know XKCD as a quick punchline yeah. webcomic. Yeah. And then suddenly this is happening. Like, yeah. like it's got to be a very yeah. jarring um, uh-huh. reaction. And there's just got to be some of that pondering of like, uh-huh. what what is he doing? And is yeah. this going to have the punchline? It doesn't have a punchline. There's no joke yeah. at the end. I mean, like, like if for listeners, like one of my favorite XKCDs that you see floating around still, I'm sure it's been on thousands and thousands of t-shirts is I, I think it must be Megan. I think it's the female, mm-hmm. a stick figure sticking her head around the door and cue ball is madly typing at her computer. And she says, are you coming to bed? And he says, I can't, there's something, someone is wrong on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And, and like that's the entire XKCD comic uh-huh. for that Monday. Yeah. Like imagine like you, you, you come for something like that. Monday, Wednesday, yeah. Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then this starts to appear at an hour pace, <laughs> this yeah. animation. Yeah. And so then one of the other technological innovations that there, it had been done on some comics, but um, Randall Monroe really pioneered the use of the scroll over text, where if you hover your mouse over a picture on the internet, you can get some specific text. And so he'll usually put a like second punchline Mm-hmm. in that text in the hover so you, text, get, yeah. you get an extra joke if you know that secret you can hover um and the the scroll over text for like the first 
three quarters of time was just wait for it. And is it so, a Hamilton tune pop into my head? Yeah. <laughs> when he said, oh, wait for it. <laughs> yeah. But so you have all these people. It's 2013. So they don't have Hamilton right. in their heads yet. But who are going, wait for what? Yeah. What are we waiting for? Is it a right? punchline? Because yeah. it's KCD. Right. What? Uh, what is this thing? Um, hence, when they began developing religions on this massive forum thread, the, the first commandment of the Church of the One Through comic is wait for it. <laughs> and didn't at one point well, I know it's I, I read somewhere that it switched the, the yeah. hypertext switch yes, when it, it, switches, was it switches to dot 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 and near the end of their journey and then um, after they've talked with the interpreter woman inside the castle and she tells them there's no hope don't bother going back right if you go back you will die um, and they leave it switches to run mm. and then <laughs> The entire time that they're going back to try and get back to their village to warn their friends and family, it just says run. (laughs) I wasn't expecting this conversation to go this way, but just what we're describing, it made me think about how often we kind of pigeonhole creative people into the thing that we know them from. Mm-hmm. And like, we just want them to keep doing yeah. that one thing. Yeah. And like, what if they'd be really good at something else if we just let them? <laughs> like, like we yeah. gave them the chance as consumers um, to to go explore a different genre. Like if you, if you really love a fantasy author and their next project is a crime novel and you're like, come on, <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why, are we, why are we getting crime novel? We come to you for fantasy. And XKCD, people came to it for one one page or, uh, you know, multi-panel, but still just one image, you know, uh, right there, set up punchline. Maybe there's more depth. Maybe it's kind of the iceberg thing where you can sit there and ponder on it and find more meaning and you can get a couple hundred um, forum posts. But then what if we let that guy do this weird experimental five month long animation? <laughs> that's, that's gonna yeah. um, to be telling this kind of uh, Campbellian monomyth story of a, a couple of people who are trying to learn and understand and discover that the world's changing underneath their feet. And one of the the posts that I've seen in the forum is actually a chart of page views on the forum over the time that the comic was being created. And they were high and like kept shooting up through the first couple of weeks of the comic and then dropped off pretty precipitously when people realized like, okay, we kind of see where this is going now. And it's not enough to maintain most of our attention. But, but they there were enough. a few hundred people <laughs> who stayed and were checking every day and were very involved. And it's that community that kept through it until, again, near the end, interest spiked as people came back and saw like, oh, this is where it's going. But during that long wandering bit, the, you know, not everyone who checks XKCD was checking to see what was happening. The fan culture that built up around this also just fascinates me because like I was so intimidated when I saw how long the, the forum threads were on this. I'm like, I can't, I can't go engage with that. Even though I just <laughs> discovered time yeah. and I was really fascinated by it and loved it. I can't go engage with those 90,000 <laughs> or however many 70, thousand, 70,000 yeah. posts that are there. And I'd feel like an interloper uh, coming to yeah. it so late in the game. And I'm sure, I mean, there are issues within fandoms of gatekeeping and all those. I'm sure they must be very nice people who wouldn't mind and someone new yeah. coming in yeah. um, and, and saying what they think. But I still like as an outsider, I, I would feel like an outsider going in, going, yeah. like looking in on that. Yeah. Yeah. They've created whole wikis just devoted to introducing this comic to new people. <laughs> But yes, they, there is actually, um, it's fun with the unique words that they come up that one of the words for people who don't follow time religiously is outsider. It's just <laughs> anyone who has other things that they do with their life. <laughs> right. 
well, I would have to fall yeah. into that into that category. Yeah. Yes. Were there any specific moments in the story that um, stood out to you that made you kind of like want to pause the scroll bar or the the animation and like linger a little longer? So there is a book. It's called The Sacred and the Profane. It's written by Mercer Eliad. I'm sure that I'm slaughtering that name, um, but. Uh, I've been reading this lately and I think it's fascinating. Uh, he's talking about the, um, he's talking about the history of religion and sort of, um, the structure of religious experience. And he talks about uh, order and chaos. And, um, and he says that the religious experience is the, is the process of, um, of, of making order out of chaos. And that, uh, so the, like the, the original sacred experience is that in this completely formless world, um, something, something breaks through that's completely different. And that's, uh, that's the divine. And then you set that up as the center of your universe. And then you build uh, a life or a society around that thing. So it's like a, a sacred tree or a sacred stone or, uh, a sacred mountain um, or a place where you killed some beast or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, he just repeats over and over in this um, the importance of uh, th- this, uh, like facing the chaos and then making uh, making something ordered out of chaos. And so the first thing that stood out to me was mm-hmm. building the castle. Yeah. Uh, which is yeah. which is this process, right? So that they're building something. So the, the the quote here from Elliot, and there's a bunch of these that are like this, but he says, "A creation implies a superabundance of reality. In other words, an eruption of the mm-hmm. sacred into the world. So a, a creation is the eruption uh, of the sacred into the world. It follows that every construction or fabrication has the com- cosmogony." As paradigmatic model, the creation of the world becomes the archetype of every creative human gesture, whatever its plane of reference may be. So, um, so the the first thing that I thought about was the castle, and then this idea of um, of exploration, right, and going out. and And Eliad talks about how there's a cycle where um, there will be some some sacred thing. Uh, erupts into the world and then humans will build a society around that thing uh, and eventually it kind of loses its power uh, as a thing and um, and some group of people will be forced uh, to leave that area uh, and move out into chaotic nature um, and then the the sacred will then uh, reveal itself again and then they'll build a new society, and then eventually somebody will split off of that, and they'll go off and and do this thing. And this this is how uh, religions are created. And um, I think there's something of that here. So that like, let's build a castle. We'll build a castle for a while, but then chaos will come and we'll encroach on this thing. Um, and then we will. Uh, and this is why I love Cubal and Megan, <laughs> because they say let's go explore this unknown chaotic thing, um, and they they face it. And they move out into it, um, and uh, I don't know, there's their um, their hope that they have. So they'll say things like, um, "Either we'll figure out the sea, or we'll mm-hmm. keep finding beautiful places," which was one of my great line, one of my favorite lines. And uh, 
The sea is so big we can't answer every question. I no, but we one. can answer any question. We just want to answer um, one question about how everything or, works. <laughs> yeah, or where do you think we are? I don't know, but I bet we can figure it out. Um, so there is this kind of uh, there's this like can do mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. like plucky pluckiness about them, um, but it's not. It's not like, let's just go face it, but let's go face it and try to figure it out. Like, let's try to make order out of chaos, which I think is um, really hard. But it's one of the things that as humans, when we're at our best, um, we really try to do. Like, we, we, we are willing to face chaos and try to make something mm -hmm. yeah, good out of it. The flood is this classic mythical yeah. <laughs> symbol for the chaotic oh, yeah. order of nature, right? Yeah. Like, unformed unorganized disastrous uh, yeah and it's it's uh, um you know like omnicultural yeah um on earth From whether gilgamesh. you're talking about the judeo-christian tradition or yeah. like the epic of gilgamesh like there are yeah. flood flood stories yeah uh that that are seem to be part of the defining um mythology of humans trying to find meaning yeah yeah um one thing that i think is very interesting with the title of this piece being time um so two two things, one jumping off of Joe and one jumping off of uh, Todd, what you just shared from Eliade. Um, so with Scott McCloud talking about the infinite canvas, um, there's a there's another XKCD where it actually is an infinite canvas. It's called click and drag. And I've you can just go, you know, click and drag and drag and drag and drag. And this comic just goes on and on and on and on and on. And there are all sorts of different Easter eggs to uncover. Like if you go up in the sky, you'll eventually see the USS Enterprise and it might go into it. And then it's being chased by a Star Destroyer from Star Wars um, and all these different things. Um, and so that is infinite one way. But time, it's always the same size of frame, right? It's only one image at a time, but it's got this near infinitude in time where it's just consistently these new images showing up. Yeah. And, you know, during the time when it's initially being released, you could think like, how long is this going to go on? Maybe forever. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, is there like, going to be an end to this? What, how, how long can <laughs> he keep doing this? Um, and so it has this, this feeling of infinitude in that fourth dimension. Um, and then on Eliade, I took a religious history class in college where we talked about his thought. And one of the things that he said um, with this sacred space is that there's sacred ordering of time to make meaning of, you know, the massive amounts of time we have. And that's most religious rituals are this way of making sacred meaning of time. And one of the really uh -huh. interesting things that he said is that his argument was that for modern people, films are the new way to make sacred sense of time. Right. That like ancient religious ritual turns into Greek theater, uh -huh. right? Greek theater becomes modern theater, modern theater becomes movies and you go, you come together, right? It's, it's kind of like still a, a communal experience. It's communal. You, you sit in these rows and you all focus on the same uh -huh. focus. It tells this story that kind of crunches time together and orders it in order to create a clear, meaningful narrative when we know that real life doesn't have neat, orderly uh -huh. narrative and doesn't fit with it two hour yeah. nice chunks where everything wraps up ne neatly, right. right? And evil is punished and good is rewarded. 
Yeah. Um, and so seeing this, you know, comic slash animated thing playing with these sacred mythic categories when Eliade argues that, you know, animation and film are the new form of mythical religious expression is fascinating. Okay, so um, my mind has just been blown. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, but I, I have a question. Um, so when he was publishing this, what you're saying is there was no way to go forward or backward? Yep. You, you would have the one moment that was in front of you. And you had to go, and to, you the could forum. go to the forum. Okay. And find, you know, people had saved earlier images. So someone had to be saving the image every hour. Probably uh, yeah. in the like, yeah. yeah. And this it you know, he already had an international fan base. So the time zones were all less over the visual, world, right? <laughs> um, are paying attention. Okay. But yeah, he said one of the reasons you could never do this before is there before the internet, there's no way to reach people every right. hour. Right? Okay, so your audience is not going to stay in one so place. Th- if that's the uh, case, so- then um this is even more genius, right? Because he's he's yeah. replicating our experience of time, which is mm-hmm. that yeah. we're stuck in it, right? Like we're stuck in yeah. the present. Yeah. There's no way to move forward yeah. and there's no way to go back. Even though we know mm-hmm. that it's there, there's no way yeah. for us to go back. And to retrieve it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So like yeah. he's reproduced the experience of, of consciousness yeah. in the present uh, and, and the way that we're locked into the present with this. Um, that's awesome. And hence the instruction is wait for it, right? You just yeah, have to yes. wait and see what comes next. Well, and I'm also thinking now, going back to Scott McCloud, um, when, again, this is, I want to say 92 is when he did Understanding Comics. Um, 93, producer Andrew saying. Uh, um, but the, he, he struggles with how to define the medium of comics and like what what's an actual good definition for what comics are. And one of the ones that he's pauses on to like debate is like some people say like juxtaposed images. And he says, well, okay, yes, comics have juxtaposed images. Like you go from panel A to panel B and you're going to make some mm-hmm. meaning there. And he, he delves into a whole different yeah. section about how we make meaning there. But he says, film is juxtaposed images. It's just uh-huh. juxtaposed through time, not space. Uh-huh. Comics are yeah. juxtaposed through space. Yeah. And this XKCD is playing with both, like with everything about that, about the medium. And yeah. kind of making this, like you said, the, this this story that's kind of on the raggedy edge of the, of the mediums, uh, you know, kind of playing with both and the way it was presented originally like now you can go find this reader that that will play it as an animation that pauses uh-huh. wherever there's dialogue so that you can read the dialogue but with the way it was being presented it was more even more of that kind of liminal what am i looking at is they, this animation is this yeah. comic they really should have named the reader the time machine yeah <laughs> this was this was a missed opportunity well but i i mean and getting back to this idea of um both eliade uh talking about um the, the creative experience and the divine and the fact that these religions have come up um, surrounding uh, this, the story, what we get through the forum and the, and the viewer is a divine experience, right? Like we're a, we are now uh, standing in the shoes of God who can see the beginning from the end. Uh, whereas readers initially, <laughs> do you see, do you, are you with me on this? <laughs> Yeah. Right. So uh, the initial reader uh, who is seeing this unfold a frame at a time is locked into the present like we are. Uh, but we, like, uh, like humans, <laughs> because of the forum and, and the community and everything that's happened, uh, we're able to step out of time like God does. And we're able to see 
the beginning from the end. We can scroll back and forth, uh, and all things are present before us in a way that 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 they are. I mean, this is like a CS well, talks talks about God yeah. like in these terms, yeah. right? And it's not yeah. just that you can go forward and backwards. It's that you can pause and you can zoom in and you can yes. like you can pause time. It, it's um, not yeah. just linear forward and backward. It it becomes something something beyond like our our conception of time itself. Yes. Yeah. So moving back in on our characters, right? We this is an amazing story. There's just so much that can be addressed. But with our characters, one thing that I think is really interesting about them is to think about what this story would be like if it was a classic hero's journey myth and how it's different because of these specific characters. Um, and I feel like if this was a classic hero's journey, right, you'd have this village that's on the edge of the sea and you have these young people. Um, and then this wise elder from their village would come <laughs> to them and be like, Hey, the sea is rising. It's threatening our village. We're going to send you to the hills You've been chosen. to seek for, you know, the, the thing that will prevent the flood and save our village. And maybe they go up into the hills and meet this other tribe and find out that there is some help along in. the way. They build but, yeah, a fellowship. Exactly, right. Yeah. But that's not what happens. They are out here on their beach on their own, making this sand castle that this enormous <laughs> complex thing, right? It starts out. And they're making this little sandcastle and then it zooms outward and we see the incredible stuff they've already gotten further up the beach. Um, and they're just talking about the ocean and the river and how it seems like the ocean has been rising a little bit. And it's not that they're worried even. They're just curious. They just want to understand the world around them better. And so this journey that they start isn't this classic mythic thing of saving the world. It's just wanting to know how the ocean works, right? And one of them is like, it can't just keep rising forever. Um, Q-Ball says that, and Megan says, sure, it can. It's the ocean. It can do whatever it wants, right? <laughs> um, and we don't understand it, right? We, we've lived here next to it all this time. It's never been rising like this. It's never been rising like this. We don't know why it's suddenly doing this. We don't know how it works. And we want to figure it out just to know, right? And so they set out on this journey of pure curiosity. And uh -huh. later it ends up becoming this moment where they realize the danger and then have to make a journey back to save everyone else. But what starts is just about trying to make sense of the world around them. And I think that really sets these characters apart and also really reflects Randall Monroe's kind of overall philosophy that's expressed through K XKCD with all of these things about comics and science and programming and just being curious and interested in the weirdness of the world around us. Yeah. And I, I, just asking questions Yeah, with the assumption that I can find an answer to yeah. this question. <laughs> like, I love that yeah. for that, what it says, like we can't answer every question. Yeah. No, but we can answer any question, yeah. uh, you know, have a question yeah. and, and look for an answer. Uh -huh. Yeah. It, it, we talked, was it when we talked about um, the Unamuno story, uh, when we were talking about striking this balance between curiosity and confidence mm -hmm. um, and like recognizing, okay, the world is huge and we are small and we, we, um, there's stuff that's just kind of beyond us. Um, but we're also pretty smart mm -hmm. and pretty capable and we can figure out a lot of stuff 
and um, and striking the balance between uh, being able to experience the sublime and uh, and being humble in the face of the mystery of the universe and also being confident in our ability to engage the chaos and to make sense and order of it. Um, and I love, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I love that about, about Megan and, and Q-Ball. I think the thing that, that makes this a more unique hero's journey story, even than their, um, their, their unique sort of call to adventure, which, which is really interior to them. I think what you're saying is uh, it's unique in that it doesn't come from the outside. Yeah. It's, this isn't Hogwarts yeah. sending them a letter. It's something inside of them that's calling them to adventure, which isn't yeah. completely and, unique in storytelling, but it's, but it's not what we're more accustomed mm-hmm. to. The thing that's more interesting to me, even than that, is the fact that they're together from the beginning. And that it's not, this isn't cue ball story and it's not Megan's story. It's the story of them together. And one of the things that stood out to me was their interdependence and um, like this attachment relationship that they have where they are each looking out for the needs of the other. And it's not his story and it's not her story. It's their story. And it only makes sense with both of them there. Uh, And I liked, I like that about, about this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And each of them goes off on their own a little bit for a little while, but they'll always come back together pretty quick. And uh-huh. I think the point that really cements that is when the panther or whatever it is attacks them, both of them is trying yes. to get it away from the other. Yeah. And I think that's that's the – is their interdependence between each other. We're, we've pretty much only seen the two of them, right? They mention that there are other people and that they come from this village. Um uh. And they, you know, they'll discuss some things about that. And there's one point where they ask, like, do you think anyone else has noticed that the sea level is rising? And then the other one replies, like, I don't think so. It's mostly just kids who hang out by the beach around this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's they're always looking out for each other. That makes it make perfect sense when they have this moment where they're told, like, don't bother going back to your village. It's too late. By the time you get there, it will be gone. And they don't even hesitate. They don't even consider the possibility yeah, of staying up on the mountain where it's safe. They they're, they're selfless. Well, yeah. Like the, one of yeah. their defining characteristics. And as much as we get defining characteristics uh-huh. for these two characters, those yeah. curiosity and selflessness, yeah. I, I think are the ones that kind of jump off. Um, if, if I'm yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I, I think we've uh, had a pretty good discussion. Any final thoughts on XKCD uh, time? Todd or Mattathias? Um, I think in thinking about it this week, as I prepared to come and record with you guys, I'm also just want to say thanks for having me. It's been a total blast, but I think one of the things about this, both in the story and in how it developed is that, um, in presenting it the way he did to his fans, Randall set up this mystery that was interesting and that you could work together, right? Everyone thought if we work together and try to figure it out, we can figure out what's going on, right? Yeah. And that's exactly the same thing we see in this story, that there's this mystery that sets them off and that then Mm -hmm. leads them to explore all these different questions. And they start out with the one question, like, why is the sea rising? And then they they realize that there are lots of other questions involved in that as they move further and see more of the world. And I think what Randall is trying to express with this Um, And the lesson that comes through in this is that if we approach it 
with that curiosity and that selflessness and that confidence that we can get answers if we look for them, the whole universe becomes that kind of mystery, right? You can just look at things and go, I wonder why it is that way. And you can work together with other people to figure it out. And then that's how you form that kind of community that has the loyalty that they have for each other in the story when you're working together to solve a big mystery like this. And that's the loyalty that developed in this fan group uh-huh. that then, you know, has now shared over 70,000 posts with each other <laughs> and has developed close friendships over this time as they tried to put together all the pieces of this really fun, giant like story puzzle. A, a, a perfect blend of um, theme and medium and execution. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't all yeah. on him. Like the, this, there had to be people who were dedicated enough to like go and make that forum and not give up on this as it yeah. ran into like month three. And you're wondering, yeah. is there an end to this? <laughs> yeah. Where is this going? <laughs> but yeah, and that he had developed a community of people who would be interested in this mystery. Right. Enough and, to pursue it. And that it then fostered a deeper connection yeah. and a deeper community around it. Todd, any final thoughts? That was amazing. <laughs> Um, I'm really glad that we got to talk about this. Uh, Mattathias, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the tip and thanks for coming on. That was a, an awesome conversation. Yeah. It's been a ton of fun. Well, yes. Thank you, Mattathias for joining us. And every time we have a new guest on the protagonist podcast, we ask a question about great characters because this is a podcast about great characters and great stories. And that question is if you could have a dinner party with any three to five great characters that you would just want to have, have around for the conversation, who would you want to invite? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks um, because I knew that you would ask as a listener of the pod, who is, I, I've been a big fan of Predice Podcast for a long time, so I'm very glad to be here. Um, but I was talking about it with my wife today to kind of finalize my grouping. And the thing that I thought about is that um, I don't think anyone on the show yet has approached it specifically from the angle of who would you want to have there to have the best dinner party? <laughs> right. They thought of like characters would be interesting, but I think we have to acknowledge that many interesting protagonists would be terrible dinner party guests. Yeah. I don't think Batman would yeah. really liven up the room. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, uh, when I talk about Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, like he would just kind of sit there in the corner on his own kind of brooding. Yeah. He'd have his pipe out um, and his hood yeah. over his head. Yeah. So you wouldn't really get anywhere. Um, and a lot of characters I think would be interesting to have as people who you become close friends with, but it would take a while to get them to open up perhaps. So I, I tried to think about who would create the best party atmosphere. And obviously the first step for this is the dinner itself, um, having excellent food. So I tried to think of the best literary cooks I could think of. Um, because if I'm going to have an amazing dinner party, I want to eat something better than what I could prepare. Um, and so Molly Weasley is my first guest. As be, uh, I like- would argue... Definitely a contender for the heavyweight cooking title (laughs) of all literature. Um, And then just in case she needs some help in the kitchen, I would also want to invite Ratatouille. (laughs) Um, The the Pixar film with the same name. I think it might be a little bit hard for the other guests to get used to him. But in a worst case scenario, I'm sure that in order to create the best possible feast, he would be willing to just hide under a hat. Depending on when we're talking about Molly being very suspicious of any rats that are acting too human. It's true. Yeah, that may. But um, I'm sure that Ratatouille could work through that. He's a very personable rat. He is. Um, And then 
for the party itself, you want to have good conversations. So you need people who have that kind of good host persona. I thought first of possibly inviting Lizzie Bennett, but realized she would probably be too acerbic and um, <laughs> offend other guests. And so I would rather invite her elder sister, Jane. There you much go. much more gracious. So Jane Bennett. Yeah. Um, and then similar host-like quality, good conversation. Um, Don Pedro from Much Do About Nothing. I think would be an excellent kind of lordly manner, right? Very You're right with a joke. With these. Yes. Are um, you going to invite Jane Bennett's uh, boyfriend, Wreck-It Ralph? <laughs> that is a, a deep cut callback yeah, for any, so. any listeners of the podcast. Um, he, he will not make the cut for the five because the fifth guest, obviously, we're going to want to have a great story to discuss at a protagonist podcast dinner party. And so we clearly knew to invite the best dinner party raconteur in literary history, which is Odysseus himself. There you go. <laughs> wow. Regale us with his tales of his travels. Oh, I feel like that is so, uh, not only a great dinner party, party for you, but you're also really leaning hard into the protagonist podcast history with some of those <laughs> yeah, choices. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Mattathias, for joining us in this discussion and also for suggesting this. I don't think this is one we ever would have come upon ourselves. No. It took a recommendation. Um, and on that note, listeners, if there's anything you want to hear us discuss, feel free to uh, drop us a line with a recommendation. Um, we love to get those. And I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 46 when we talked about another webcomic, Gunner Creek Court, or episode number 83 when we talked about Calvin and Hobbes, episode number 162 when we talked about fan fiction, which is kind of another uh, like experimental um, you know, medium or, or genre of uh, storytelling, or episode number 173, a recent one when we talked about Snoopy from Peanuts. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, our producer Andrew is at Dizminute on Twitter. Uh, Mattathias, do you have anything to plug at all? Um, I'm working on something that I will produce when I send you something for the show notes, but I don't have something right now. Okay. <laughs> and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. So if you have anything to plug in the future, Mattathias, let us know. We can put a link there on uh, facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We enjoy our conversations there with our listeners and we'd love for any of you to stop by and give us a comment or feedback. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Can you guys hang on one oh, sec? Wait. I gotta go grab a book. This happens very often. Right <laughs> Is it gonna be Uno Muno? Is it gonna be? <laughs> I just had to go grab a book, Andrew. I mean, he hasn't pulled out Lemmy Mouse for a while. Oh.